glory filled our soul. I started last week sharing about called a Division Sunday, kind of where we're heading, some natural things. But I also want to make very clear, and I want to go into another step further. <clears throat> well, God's calling us to be as a spiritual house. Though we're going to do some things, make some room, remodeling things, it's going to make it conducive for a lot of things. And the good thing is that none of our staff has to be the one building it. We're trusting God for things that's, that's really supernatural. We've never gone this way before and believed God for this at this level. But before we could believe God because we could get out and do so much. We can knew we could do it. We're past that point. We're at that point to where we're just putting in the Lord's hands saying, God, Psalms 127 said, unless the Lord builds the house, then those who labor, labor in vain. So we're putting it all out there as well. Not that that's, you know, the, the quintessential of, of what needs to happen with that. But we're, we're making room for those things. Turn with me with this, this Philippians, the third chapter. Just want to go a little farther into that, and then we'll give some more detail. I believe that every church, ecclesia is the word. Ecclesia is just a term that means called out to govern on earth. We're called out of the world to govern in the kingdom of God. So when you see the word church, it doesn't mean a building with a steeple on it. It has significant wording of that. Ecclesia was for the idea of legislating and governing on earth as, as he is in heaven. In essence, there's a government of God in heaven, and to the level that we connect with the government of God in heaven, are we able to govern here on earth. And the first area that God wants to govern is us. The guy that lives between our two elbows. If we see so much for everybody else and we have opinions what everybody else should do, but yet we're not walking out ourselves, then it's the term in the Bible, and, and I'm just telling the Bible calls it this. I'm not saying this, but I'll blame it on the Bible. It's the word hypocrite. Hypocrite comes from the word hypocrites. Hypocrites is an old, the Greek plays that would have one actor, but many actions and many scenes. And one actor, he would have several faces and it would be a face on a stick. And one minute he could be the devil and he'd run backstage and the next minute he could be an angel. He would just change faces to act out the storyline. So hypocrites means that there's one person who's carrying several different faces of that. So when he talks about the ecclesia, the governing of God, he comes to fill us with the Holy Spirit so we're not feel like we're two or three different people. I'm not saying schizophrenic, but the double word, the word double-minded is with schiza, which means two minds. There's two minds, there's two lords, two gods, and so on. But he's called us to be single-mindedly, to have the mind of Christ, and to bring our mind into subjection to him. So part of the thing that the Holy Spirit, I believe today, really wants to free many people in this audience is that we suffer, many of us, from lies. Not lies that you would tell someone that you're doing something you didn't do, but the lies of the enemy. By the time I could take you back into the king of Tyre and Ezekiel where he's talking about, and he's really speaking of the devil himself, the principality there, and he was known as one for trading, as you were on a Wall Street tra trader, but the Bible expressly, expressly says, and he traded in lies. When the devil trades, it is for trading for something. For every lie that you believe, you have to give up truth. So truth and lies can't coexist because it just doesn't make sense. So if you believe a lie about yourself or someone else, that means you've traded the truth for it. For instance, if you believe that I have yourself, that you have no worth, God doesn't exist, he doesn't love you, doesn't care anything, then you have given up the truth, the reality of the potential of what he says you are. For a person who has an opinion and, and criticism about everybody and everything, you're taking up space when the Holy Spirit wants to say, I want to give you the truth about everybody. You'll know the truth, and that truth brings freedom. Having an opinion about somebody else takes up bandwidth that the enemy likes to keep a little bit of fingerprint or footprint there. So giving up that, because 
It's a high place. We'll get into that in just a moment. Proverbs 6 chapter says there's six things that God hates. One of those things, which I've never really fully understood, is a haughty look. I don't know what a haughty look looks like, but I suggest maybe take a look in the mirror and say, God, do I have one? One translation means that their nose is stuck up in the air. I still don't know what that means. Maybe they're just trying to get a good whiff. I don't know. But somehow or another with God, it is a look that says, I am above other people, and what I say is higher, and my opinion becomes higher than everybody else. God says he hates that. I mean, when the Bible says God hates, I mean, it's not just disliking a little bit. Literally, he abhors it to the point of, we would say in, in English, it would say upsetting him, upset stomach. He goes on to a false weight and names several other things. I'm glad that there, we find in Scripture what God likes as well as what he hates. They're saying God loves the gates of Zion. He loves praise. He loves people that, that love people and minister, you know, and show forth his goodness and mercy to one another. He likes those things. So we understand what God likes, and he said, I'm giving you a whole footprint of what I like. Then enter into a place to where God likes to hang out with us because we're doing the same things he likes. So when we look about preparing a place for his presence, which is what I'm hearing the Holy Spirit saying that I'm so enamored with, if will, or weighted with so much, the presence of God, the glory of God is not chill bumps, not a Pentecostal feeling, whatever that feels like or looks like. But it's just the weightiness of God himself that brings the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It causes us to be, to be able to repent without having to find some sin in our life to repent for. It is an attitude that simply says, I want to relate to how you feel, even if it means repenting over my city, repenting over my nation, repenting over my bloodline, whatever it is, because it means to change the way we think. So repentance somehow or another brings about an attraction for the presence of God. So well, I didn't commit anything, I didn't do those things, but I can tell you that simply the Spirit-led repentance attracts the presence of God. Diana, years ago, we were in Poland, and we were to minister to 42 pastors <clears throat> there, and uh, they wanted nothing to do with Americans. And I was leading, I think it was 12 pastors there, we were leading them, and they wanted a presbytery. We'd been ministering in their churches all week long, so we came to the mother church there in Katowice, and uh, the, the guy who was a presbyter over that area said, here, I want you to minister to them. Well, they came back and said, we don't want any of the Americans to to prophesy over us. My first feeling is, well, I didn't come all this way over here to be rejected. All the Polish jokes started running through my mind. <coughs> I had to lay that down. And then we went in another room and, and we started hearing the word of the Lord over us. Diane got word concerning something in the background. I remember I thought, why do they dislike Americans so much? Because they believed a lie. We had been to Auschwitz the day before, and we were broken. We were a broken mess. So I knew that one of the reasons was that they, they believe that all Americans are arrogant and wealthy. Well, here we are. We don't look that wealthy. We flew coach all the way over there. <clears throat> and the second thing, would, by the Spirit of the Lord, we heard had something to do with World War II. We couldn't have made this up. So I told him, I said, listen, my father was in the military during World War II, and I've heard the stories. He was stationed outside of London. And they were angry and had this lie put in their background somewhere growing up that Americans didn't like them and we would not come to their defense until Pearl Harbor, the Japanese came in. And maybe, maybe that was the reason. That's why we were drawn into the world war. Because of that, they believe the lie that do not believe anything Americans tell you. Because of what we saw with Auschwitz the day before, I, I told the pastor, we're going to get in front of them and repent. A couple of them says, I have nothing to repent for. And I said, then you need to wait in the other room. We got down on that hard concrete floor 
And as soon as our knees hit the floor, I wasn't looking around, but the majority of us began to weep. The spirit of repentance came, not the feelings or the emotions of repentance. It was the Holy Spirit that was moving inside of us, and we were not there to justify actions politically. You know, we were, I told him, I'm not here representing United States of America. I'm here representing the kingdom of God. <clears throat> so we, we went through that and began to pray and said, thanks, and repent for their, their, how they felt about America. I'm sorry we've done these things to you. And I'm sorry that there were some Americans that have come over here and they preached to you very condescendingly, preaching down to you like you did not know the word of God and that they were smarter than you are. And they did it. I heard stories. I said, I'm sorry. So we started repenting for that. We just got up, went in the other room. A little bit, the, the presbyter came in the room and they said, they'll hear you now. We walked out there and uh, he said for the group there, he was translating in Polish, and he said, never before have we seen an American repent or say sorry for anything. It took repentance to break the lies that they believed, and the lie kept them from receiving what God wanted to say. We weren't the first Americans to be over there. But we had to be the first ones to break that lie. So as all 42 pastors and their wives sat down, that we prophesied over them all afternoon. And I mean, there was very strategic things. Remember a couple of them was that when you were a small child at 12 years old, you did this happen, this happened to you, and you thought you were rejected by God. We've come to tell you that that wasn't God's design for you and brought healing to them. This went on and on. Finally, we got to the last person and this pastor said, I don't want them prophesying over me. And I knew by the spirit, he was concerned about what would be revealed. So I said, okay, we won't prophesy over you, but can we pray over you? He said, sure. So we prayed prophetically over him. <laughs> and the process of praying prophetically over him came out some things. God doesn't expose something to hurt people, but he brings light to it because whatsoever is held in darkness can't prosper. But when light comes, it destroys the work of the enemy and wholeness can come from that point. So as I share this morning, here the Holy Spirit is, there is a lie that the devil has spoken to you, maybe coming back from the beginning of childhood, whatever it might be, or maybe a, a, a now lie. All of a sudden something happens, I'm at this point, you're at a certain time in your life that this has happened, that's not happened, then know that the fact, if it doesn't bring you closer to the Lord or bring glory and honor to the name of the Lord, and does not bring freedom in your life, it's probably a lie. Because God wouldn't say anything to separate you from him. Who can be separated from the love of God? He names several things in scripture. So a lie separates us, truth draws us together with that. There's a difference between revelation and truth. The Bible talks about in, in 1 Peter, uh, 2 Peter, the first chapter, verse 12, says, for this reason I will not be negligent to bring you to remembrance of these things, though you know and are established in present truth. Hang on to that word, that you're established in present truth. Truth is a person of the Holy Spirit. But present truth is different than truth. Truth is what the Lord has said. It's, to, it's set a path. Truth is all the way through. You shall know truth. That truth shall bring us freedom, bring us into, set us free. But there's also the point of present truth, which comes with the idea of revelation. When the truth that he's already said, more like the le le Lagos word, Logos word, Lagos, that's a city. <laughs> Not Lagos, Nigeria. Logos word, that God has said some things, but when that word becomes present truth, all of a sudden it becomes applicable, it becomes revelation. I love to operate or hear the Lord in what he is saying, not just what he has said. If what he has said doesn't bring me into what he is saying, then what I'm listening to what he said, I'm not getting translation of the Holy Spirit on it. Everything he said wants to bring us into present truth. In present truth brings life, and at that moment that has the authority and power of the Holy Spirit to pull down strongholds at anything that resists against you. It's possible for us to do a lot of, lot of things 
that are really spiritual. When Elijah was confronting the prophets of Baal, Baal was cutting them, the Baal, prophets of Baal was cutting themselves, running around, dancing, doing all kinds of things. It looked like they were at a, a high intense service. It's possible for, do, for us to do a lot of activity and not attract the presence of God. We can be busy about a lot of tradition and not operate in truth. Truth additions where I've taken things and added my own spin on it so it's more comfortable for me to live in it. For instance, the doctrine of this area that is the doctrine of cessation is a lie. Doctrine of cessation basically says that everything after the apostles that died off with him no longer exists. And that doctrine is a lie because what it's saying is that way I've comforted myself that I don't have to believe God for healing and miracles or anything today. So I just cherry pick what I, what I believe the Bible is saying. If that's true, that it all passed away with the apostles, then what about salvation? Because part of the doctrine of the apostles was that the gospel of the kingdom and for salvation. So that meant salvation, everything passed away. But we choose to pick things that we're comfortable with and things we don't understand. We say that must have passed away. Well, the Holy Spirit of truth comes to bring us into present truth, even at times when it's not comfortable because you usually speak to us about ourselves in order to reveal himself, the Father. So in Job 14, verse 9, I love this scripture. It says that when a tree is cut back to the stump at the scent of water, it will bring, it will bud and bring branches again. Part of what God's called this house is to provide an environment for every person that comes in through these doors that feels like they have been cut back to the root. They have been sawed in half and thrown away and have nothing. But at the scent of water, in a time of worship and blessing and honoring of the Lord, at the scent of water, because inside of them, every person, there's a desire to know God, a desire to connect with God. And as you worship and bless the Lord, it's not just about you, but you're providing a scent or a fragrance for people that come through these places that have been cut back, have been kicked out, divorced, thrown to the curb, and, and nobody loves them, nobody cares. But at the fragrance of his presence, all of a sudden, I feel something wanting to rise up again. I can do this again. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when people are exalting and worshiping his name, there's this hopefulness that begins to rise up out of us. This church is called to be a place where we release the scent of the presence of God. They just feel the presence of God on them and not just waiting three songs we're going to change and something else happens, blah, blah, blah. We get out before everybody else does and get to the buffets. How religious is that? If you need to go, that's fine. <laughs> no <laughs> condemnation. Just leave me plate afterwards. <laughs> so what happens in these moments that the Lord is training us to be an epicenter, a portal for the presence and glory of God. Philippians 3. Paul says this in verse 12. I started with this a little bit last week. Not that I've already attained or am ready, already perfect, or teleos mean completed, but I press on. I will not let myself regress, but I'm pressing on, continually moving towards him. Not just a gray area, not being static when people say, well, I just need to take a break. What? What is a break from? From him? We can take breaks with him. We don't have to take breaks from him. All right, look at this. I, I press on that I may hold, take hold of that which Christ, the anointed one, Jesus has laid hold of me. Once you have felt that the Holy Spirit through Jesus, Jesus through the Holy Spirit, has taken hold of you, there's something inside of you that says, now I want to take hold of him. I can see it a number, a couple of ways when Jesus was with the disciples and he was just beginning to call his, his group together, his 12, and, and they're out fishing. So he speaks to them about where they are. Cast your nets on the other side. We fished all night. You know the story. And you throw it over there. The boat's filled up with fish and all of a sudden he's awestruck. Who is this man that can do these things? So now what do they do? The Bible says they left their nets and they followed him. Now they're pursuing him. He's not just pursuing them. I'm not saying you got to leave your vocation and, and just hang around and you know, go after something. 
that we can pursue him while we're fishing, while whatever vocation we're in. Elijah, after having his encounter with, over Jezebel and the prophets of Baal there, one of the, one of the mandates that God get, told him was that you go anoint Elisha to take your place. He finds Elisha, he's out there doing his thing, he's plowing, he's in charge of the whole thing, got 12, 12 head of oxen plowing, there's servants there. All of a sudden, Elijah comes over at him and throws his mantle on him. For us, we wouldn't think, know what that meant. It's not a cold day, so I don't know what you're doing. And he said he knew what it meant, and he wanted him to follow him. The call of God is that moment in time where you feel the touch of God, and he pursues us. Then tag, you're it. Whatever happens the next moment is entirely up to you. Everybody is called, but the Bible says, but many will choose, few will choose. The word chosen is not origin in that. But many are called, but few will choose. There will involved in that. So when Elisha says to him, let me go kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I'll follow him. And he said, what have I got to do with you? In other words, I'm not making it easy on you. I've just given you an opportunity. What are you going to do with it? As I said last week, we come up to the mountain the glory of God is there. Are we going to go up the mountain or are we going to go back into the wilderness and hang out with the golden calf and go through the motions? Well, with Elisha, we, Elijah knew what that meant. Let me kiss father and mother goodbye. That, to us, that wouldn't sound like a bad thing. But it means after my parents die and they're no longer around, I have no other responsibility, then I'm going to follow you. How many understand that God doesn't call us on our opportune time? He calls us on his timing. And when we respond to him, instead of saying, well, when everything's right and perfect in my life and I get this together and I get that together and, and I I'm, have no more need of you, then I'll follow you. It's not at it. I'll take you right where you are with limp, no limp. I'll take you anyway. Because he's calling us to follow him, not looking to make our lives in as a, in a point of comfort. If you went back into 1 Samuel 3 when, when the Bible says that the word of the Lord and visions were so rare because Eli had, had, lo had, had lost the, the presence of God. His sons, Phinehas and Hophni, where they were just ungodly, committing adultery with women, coming to the temple with the sacrifices. And it's so much that God knew what was going to happen and he didn't have a plan B, he had his plan. And his plan, he's always got one ready as the lamb from the foundation of the earth was slain. He had a Samuel getting ready to be born by a woman who thought she was barren. Until the time came, Samuel's eight years old, and he heard God say Samuel, but the Bible says he did not know the voice of God. He heard the sound of God, but didn't know the voice of God. We can hear the sound of something, but when you know the voice of it, that means I understand instruction. And he told Eli exactly what was going to happen. And because they had lost this place of the presence of God, here's what I think is interesting. Samuel, according to most scholars, he slept in the temple next to the veil. And yet it says of Eli, he lay down in his usual place. That hit me for some reason. I said, God, I don't want to be comfortable in my place of preference. I want to be in the place of your preference, your presence. Where is the place of your presence is greater than the place of my preference. In my preference, God, if you want me, that's where I'm going to be. But I, I want you to catch me off guard at any moment in time and sweep me up, Lord, and saying it's not about your timing, it's not about your ability, it's not what you think and how you feel. It's what I'm calling you to do. And sacrifices are exactly that, is giving up personal preferences for his calling. When I was called, I was so afraid of people, the idea of getting up and speaking in front of someone would just make me so terrified, I would, I would for days and on end, just dread it. And I thought, God, if I'm called, then why is it this bad? Surely, I could not go a lifetime of feeling this bad day in and day out. I would study all week, Sunday would come, I would deliver it, and all of a sudden, I'll look up, Sunday came again. I had seven days before I had to do that again, and somehow or another, the seven days seemed to be shorter and shorter and shorter. 
God confronts us with our fears to deliver us into his freedom. So this morning is whatever the Holy Spirit needs to break in your life, a mindset about yourself that I can't, I can't, I can't, or this isn't working, I don't, everything around me is not favorable, then you break that lie, and when that lie is broken, it's amazing how God will make provision and open the door of what, you, what he's called you to do. You don't have to figure it out, you just simply say, here I am, Lord, speak. Philippians third chapter, I'm behind as usual. Whatever that's behind. I don't know what. I'm giving that up on that idea. That I may lay hold on for which Christ, the anointed Jesus, has laid hold on me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. I'm not fully grasped it yet. But this one thing I know, forgetting those things which are behind, that is the first issue. You can't apprehend what God's called you to do if you're always thinking about the old days or what was. I remember many years ago, we brought a guy in. He is a former drug addict, had a great testimony when I heard him anyway. And as he started telling his testimony about, he said, I had thousands of dollars would come in every day. I had sports cars. I had women at my disposal all the time. And I thought, where are we going to get to the point that I found Jesus? And the more he talked about what he went through, I could see his eyes. And he started slowing down more and more. And all of a sudden... I could tell that he had glorified his past that he had never let go of. I told him later, I said, you'll never apprehend as long as you got one foot back there. I remember the old days before we had to come out of Egypt, you know, that the pots were full, had plenty of meat there. We could go, the leeks and the garlic, everything was so good and spicy there. And then we came out here in the wilderness, which we were called to. Sometimes a calling of God at that very moment doesn't make sense, but he frees us from what was in the past so we could grab hold of what we were apprehended for. And God wants to free what free you from what, what anybody else thinks about you. As long as that is an issue, the devil will bring people to you. <laughs> it's amazing. And he'll say things to you to, to, to put you down, to fill you, and he just keeps filling that thing back up. Until the freedom is, I wasn't called by people, I was called by God. Therefore, I'm going to take pleasure in what the Lord says. And you have to hear what God says more than anybody else says that. So that's what he's, the, the point is that this church, we are, we're being apprehended. And he goes on to say, as, as many as are, are like-minded, they need to press on towards that. I want us to look at what I believe the Holy Spirit is saying in my heart. I believe to all of us, we give witness to this. For this year, several months ago, I heard the Holy Spirit saying really clear, I want you to build an altar and not a ministry. I've shared that one other time. It has taken a while to seethe inside of my spirit because when you build a ministry, it doesn't mean that we, we, we don't do responsible things. But if you, if you don't have any wine, you don't need a wineskin. But if you do have wine, there's a need for a wineskin so that you don't spill it. If you're going to feed the hungry and there's bread and meat left over, 5,000 you know, fed, then you take up basketfuls. In other words, God always gives us more than what we need, to, to not just to be consumers, but to be distributors. <clears throat> so hear me this morning that he wants us to have an altar in this house. The word altar simply means a raised platform or a place that's elevated. And the first time that we really see the word altar come into place is Genesis 8 and verse 20, right when, uh, when Noah came out of the ark and the, and the ark rested, that the Bible says, and Noah built an ark. There wasn't any, there wasn't the scriptures, there wasn't the Torah, the Mitzvah, any of that. So Moses, I mean, excuse me, Noah had some revelation of what God said, and he wanted him to build an altar, and there he sacrificed the animals before the Lord. And the Bible said, and God smelled the sweet aroma. So understanding that there's some things that may not smell good to us, but God didn't ask our opinion on what it smelled like. He just said, offer it to him. I think God likes burning flesh, really. Let the God who answers by fire, let him be God. 
It's a sweet-smelling savor. Galatians, Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. In the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. In the New Testament, Jesus was crucified on an altar known as the cross. Yet the Bible says we're crucified with him. So the altar wasn't something that just went away. It is something that we're, it's inside our heart and we participate with him. In the Old Testament, there was nothing new under the sun, so the demonic realm would also build altars. Everything that God established and set a precedent, the demonic realm would come and set up their own realm. Israel became very paganistic and they began to build the, the raised platforms and on mountains and places. That's why you see Mount Carmel was the place that Elijah confronted them then. And they would build these raised places where they would have these to the prophet, to the, excuse me, to the, the God of Baal, which simply means husband. There was about, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of different type of Baals. But it's the same word as husband. Who's going to be your husband? Who are you going to submit to? Who are you going to give authority to? And they would worship in these asteroids and these high places there. If you go into to Judges, the sixth and seventh chapters, we see an interesting account there when God has, sends the angel and he comes to Gideon because the Midianites had been just harassing and tormenting the Israelites and because they, Israel had gotten into pagan worship. And he comes to the most unlikely person at a very unlikely time and Gideon has got just a little bit of grain because the Midianites will always show up at harvest time. You need to rethink about this, that the Midianite spirit shows up right when you're ready to reap something. Years ago, some of the elders might remember this, that every March we would take a, a hit financially. We couldn't even hardly make payroll. This went on. I didn't, pay, I didn't get any much attention until coming into the new year, the Holy Spirit said to me, how long are you going to put up with the eyes of March? The eyes of March? Was God Irish and I didn't know it? And he said, no, it was a curse. It was mythological, but nonetheless. He said, the enemy has found a time and season to steal, and you've done nothing about it. I thought, well, I thought this was your church. But I'm holding you responsible as a steward over my body and my kingdom. So we got the elders together and we began to pray and said, we're, we're not going to go through another march like we've had. You know, we catch up and not, this is not God's will. So we began to pray and fast and said, March will not be a down in a decreasing. March will not be a depressed time. March will not have anything to do with the methodology. And we just start pressing with that. That March came and went and that was the largest increase we had ever seen in the church for that time. There is a Midianite spirit that comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and he wants us to understand truth and be led by the spirit, is you don't have to take it on the chin, but there are some things you have to do. So when God came to get in, he said, I want you to deal with this, and you're a mighty man of valor. He always prophesies th things to us that we're not as though it is, and he's getting us there, though we're not ready for it, but he just says, I just need to say, okay, I'm willing. I don't see how it can happen, but I'm willing to suit up and show up and see what God does. So he tells, takes him through the process. The angel comes to him. Gideon's still not sure if it's really God or not God, so he does these fleeces, and he, he goes through time of offering this, these to the, uh, offerings to the angel. And finally it comes down to that God says, all right, you're ready. You got too many people, wean them down, you know, take them down to the water. How people drink will decide whether they go on the other side of the river or not. I think there was a move of God in 94, for a, for a lot of us anyway. The Lord said, how you respond and drink with this, we called it renewal, drink during this season determines what you'll do on the other side. Some people didn't like anything to do with it. We stewarded it the best we could and we were trying to learn to drink from the presence of God. He takes 300 in with him. They have the picture of the shofar. They break it. The enemy is completely destroyed. Here's the key before you get to victory. He tells Gideon, your father has some high places and some altars that are to Baal. First thing before you go after the enemy and go to get victory, look and see, do I have any high places 
any idolatry places. Now, I know we don't have statues probably on the, you know, hanging on the shelves and that kind of thing. But before we, before we say no, think about a, an altar is a high place that has been exalted. And the Bible says that our thoughts are exalted above the knowledge of God. If we believe a lie, then we have a high place that's exalted above God. If God says this about you, but you're saying this about you, then you have a high place that's exalted that lie above the knowledge of God. Anytime that we have an internal self that we made, you know what I'm talking about, anytime we've made uh, internal vows, it's a high place. I'll never let somebody get close to me again because every time they do, they hurt me. You've, ex you've made a vow. You have an exalted high place. I'm not going to trust God for this. I'm not going to allow the Lord to get victory over it. I'm just setting my own. I believe in setting boundaries, but sometimes we set boundaries that keep God out as much as it keeps the enemy out. And sometimes we're better at keeping the enemy out than we are understanding that we're keeping God out in this. So a high place can be a double-minded position that has set a high place above God. When God says this, and we say, well, maybe men really like this. When the serpent came to Adam and Eve in the garden and said, did God really say? At that moment, he was creating a high place, and the Lord was saying, what are you going to do with it? And they agreed with that high place, and they lost their position and lost the presence of God. One guy says, wife ate him out of house and home. Anyway, they had to leave. When you have to leave the presence of God, that everything operates against you. The ground doesn't produce, nothing happens yet, everything is difficult until you re restore and replace the place that we're the presence of God. I would just suggest that every home and that's hearing me this morning, you should have an altar of God in your home. And I'm not talking about a platform or raised place, but understanding how you function inside your home is very indicative how what happens publicly. If it's not done privately, the enemy doesn't care whether whatever is done publicly. So with that altar, a place in our heart that we're raising him, lifting him up above all other names and all other things, all other thoughts. If there is a raised platform or a raised mindset as a haughty spirit that I'm smarter than they are and look how bad they are and all this kind of judgmental stuff. I'm telling you, that is a high place and the devil always frequents that. Because if the enemy knew how God, re how God built places of, of altars that, loved, that blessed the Lord, Abraham practiced it. He had like six, seven altars that he kept going back to because there were portals and places where God would, would visit with him. Moses had that. Jacob had those times they knew where to get, how to get back in the presence of God. Each one of those altars represented a time and place when God would come and visit them. There's a lot of things that we know theologically, but we don't practice practically. Understanding it theologically is just me swapping recipes with you. You know what I'm saying by that? We're just swapping ideas and good word, that's a good word, that's a good word. But if I'm not walking it out, it does nothing. But when there's altars that belong to the Lord that we've lifted it high, there is a deliverance that comes to us, our personal lives. Deliverance comes to our home and family because we're exalting the Lord. We're not letting any words that are, that are destructive. We're not letting words become higher than God because God knows best. We're saying, well, I think this and I think that. Then we say, no, this is what God should do. I should be praying over them. First John says, if you see a brother that sins a sin that's not unto death, what do you do? Pile on him and jump on him and tell him how bad he is and you should have known better? I don't think so. The Bible says you ask a lie for him. You ask God, give him life. Reveal yourself to him in such a way. When we do that, we're setting a high place in the presence of the Lord. David said, the Lord prepares a table for me. Where? In the midst of my enemies. And that, is a, that was in the mountain place. We learn our experiences through all the low places. So the ultimate is I want to take you into the place and the table that I've prepared for you 
that though the enemy is there howling out around you, you can eat in the midst of your enemies. Now that's victory and that's power and that's authority when you can eat and not let the devil disturb you and go away whining and saying, God, the devil attacked me, the devil attacked me. Well, praise God if he did because that means you have greater authority and power to push back the gates of hell and that gives you the right to do it again and again and again. If we don't, then the enemy comes showing up again and again and again. It is a portal demons can frequent on altars that are demonic. They, are, they will show up and suit out and do all kinds of things to mess up. But the altars of the Lord always triumph over those demonic realms of that. First Kings, the 18th chapter. I would love to spend time reading it, but I'm going to have to run here. First Kings, the 18th chapter, is a case where Elijah is getting ready to confront the prophets of Baal. His words are said, it's not going to rain. And it didn't rain. God says, I'll back up your words. So now he's at the point, says, tell him I'm ready. I'm ready to do it. And the interesting thing is that Elijah comes down to a place on Mount Carmel where there had been the altar of the Lord. But by the altar of the Lord was there was now this altar in Ashtaroth of Baal and all of the, the prophets, 850 of them show up and one lone prophet that's about equal Remind me years ago there was a riot over in Lone Star this true story a friend who was a DPS said that the Department of Public Safety sent one of the rangers down to, the, to that riot in Lone Star ranger pulls up in his car grabs a shotgun and they were riding everywhere and he sees the manager over this union thing he said he said uh, Where's the riot? He says, well, here's the riot. We can see the riot. And he said, well, where's your backup? He goes, how many riots do you have? Well, we got one riot. And he said, you get one, one ranger for one riot. The ranger pops a shotgun out, rounds out a couple of rounds and said, who wants to be first? And they all scattered and riot, riot was over. When authority shows up and the, and the, carries the power of the Holy Spirit behind them and a good shotgun nothing else, then something happens that scatters the enemy because he knows that you have built a portal from heaven and something is transpiring at that point. If you go into eight, uh, 1 Kings 18, you'll go and see, and when Elijah is ready to do his thing, he's letting them, cutting themselves, and they're jumping around doing all their, their demonic stuff, nothing's happening. And he, the Bible says very powerfully, and Elijah repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. He uses a word that's very interesting. He used the word repaired. The word repaired means it once was paired, and now it's not paired. At one time, the heaven and earth was connected. At one time, God was in the garden and was connected and something broke the connection, and now they have to move into repair. Meaning to restore the connection between heaven and earth. Even Jesus said, if I be lifted up, there in John 12, I will draw all men to me. Jesus came to repair, or repair, if you will, the body of Christ to himself and to his Father. The kingdom of God is at hand. So in our, I can see, it's easy to see in our, in our nation, it has been increasing for decades, this isn't anything new, but the altar of the Lord that has the portals of presence of God, he would, whatever that is, open heavens, whatever term you want to use, he said, hey, I'm creating an environment, and Jesus prayed it in Matthew, the sixth chapter, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, he said, I'm preparing a place where I can bring heaven into earth. It won't happen everywhere, but those who choose my presence and want my presence and build an altar, I'll come. I'll come. Just as God told Moses, there's a place by me and I'll place you there. There's something I believe the Holy Spirit is training and wanting us to grasp is I wanna build an altar in this house, and I'm not talking about a building, in the city, certainly in our nation, to where the presence of God comes. 
And when the presence of God comes, somehow or another, darkness doesn't want to be around. When Jesus went to the other side and he was in the Gadarenes, doesn't say that he's looking to cast demons out. In fact, it says he's looking to rest. Soon as Jesus steps foot on the soil of the Gadarenes, demons start wanting to, why have you come to torment me before my time, for our time? Because in the presence of the Lord, the gates of hell have to move backwards. The perimeters and the boundaries all of a sudden are changed. The demographics begin to change. The demographics over your home and your household begin to change when you allow the portals of the kingdom of God to come into your house. How much time do you pray with your spouse? How much time do you set that established as something that is viable and powerful? We believe that every good and every perfect thing comes from, from God. Then how much time do we give to him that we believe every good and every perfect thing comes from? Not just for Trinity Fellowship, but for your, your house he wants to set an altar. So, well, I'm a, you know, my, I, my spouse or my family doesn't believe that way. Then find time for me and my house. We're going to serve God. Whether they hear that or not, you can establish a place of the portal of God. I grew up in that environment where nothing happened until we prayed. Nothing happened until we got things right with God. I mean, we just didn't sweep it on the carpet and go on, well, we got to hurry up and go through this because da, da, da. It was, this is the priority. The kingdom of God is at hand. Anything else other than that, your hand's too full. He gives us handfuls on purpose when we understand the kingdom of God. No. Job 22, verse 28 says this, talking about an altar for the Lord, you will declare a thing and it will be established. I declare this morning the Trinity Fellowship Church body, we're building a, an altar, not a ministry. If you're looking for a ministry, there's plenty of areas when serve, but if you're looking for a high place, you're probably going to be disappointed. He is seated in that high place. He is seated in the heavenlies. And we're there to come up to him and with him and to exalt his name. One of the ways, and I don't have time to get it too much in the morning, that you build an altar, it has the spirit of worship and honoring the Lord before you honor anything else. Now hear me. It's easy to get to where we honor our children and become Eli's and miss God. Letting our children dictate what, what their spiritual life. And when we do that, we're, we're setting a, a standard or setting a portal that says your children are up for grabs. If an unbelieving husband can be sanctified by a believing wife, then you can sanctify your children by giving them opportunities and exposing them to the presence of God. You've heard my stories about my mother. We got anointed every morning. And if there wasn't any oil handy, she'd lick her finger and just shh. <laughs> There's times I went to school smelling like, a, like somebody who had just had morning breath. <clears throat> I want to read this verse of scripture to you and I'm done. John, the third chapter. This is where we're heading. This is our vision. Believing God for a portal. When people come in there, the presence of God weighty. They're healed. They're delivered. They're set free. Something happens that's divine and remarkable that will be awestruck. I like this. John is recording verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is on the earth is earthy and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all, and he who comes from the heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony, this is John speaking, 
has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the word of God, for God does not give the spirit by measure. God does not give the spirit by measure. The word measure, there's metron, which actually, it can be applied anointing. My heart and cry is that God would bless this house with the anointing and his spirit without measure. So much so that we're not measuring. God, that's enough. I'm good for the day. I'm, that's enough. We just only handle so much. And I get that. But if he's stretching the wines, he's going to be stretching the capacity to a little bit, that we're able to receive more from him than we ever did before, then do it, Lord. If it takes more carpet time, as we used to say, you know, face down, whatever, in order for there to be the weightiness of God to come upon us, we owe it to this city and we owe it to our family to build an altar and anything that's broken, repair it, which means reconnect it like Jesus did between heaven and earth, between man and God, repair it. And the repairing is its always about saying, I repent, Lord. I ask you to forgive me. So, Father, we come believing this morning that your might and your power would come into this city, into this place. We ask you to forgive us, O oh Lord, in any areas where we've just gone through the motions, the religious, having a form sounding like, looking like, but denying anyone the right to experience the power of the Holy Spirit. God, I pray that that we build this, this altar in our heart first, allowing you to be first and foremost, worshiping, honoring, and loving you, calling upon your name, not just in time of need, but calling upon your name as this is my daily bread. We declare in Jeremiah 1.10 that we would pull down, pluck up, uproot, so that we could build. God, help us, O Lord, to be wise in the uprooting, the disconnecting from the things of this world so that we can build the house of God and that we'll not carry another face, carry another mind, another thought, but we'd walk it out fully before you. Holy Spirit, just, just allow you to come. Fill the house. Teach us and train us, O oh God, how to lift you up and you have the raised position. We come and we cleanse any altars, the altar of complaining, the altar of anger, the altar of deceit, the altar of poverty, all of those altars where the enemy comes and frequents. Because we can do all the right things and yet not see the power of God. Jesus, you pay the price for your church, belongs to you. Help us to be good stewards of the manifold presence of God from now until you call us back, till you call us up higher. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.